Normally when I start an episode in an obviously upset state, it's because of the episode. Let me be clear, that's not the case here. This episode pisses me off, but in a minor way, and it's always a decent episode other than that. I'm not looking for tech help. I know what I'm doing, I know why it happened. I don't really have a long-term solution other than buying a new computer, which is something I'm holding off for for another few uh, years. Anyways... Uh, I, I've, I've, I've already recorded this episode. <laughs> the whole thing. I was right at my very last tidbit where I was talking about the Romulans and their ships, and then... Bzzz, hard crash. No blue screen, just gone. Just turned off immediately. <sighs> and because I have to record in a certain format in order to be able to edit my, fo my files properly in order to put out the finished product... Um, it it didn't compile the file. So that's 40 minutes of my life gone. So this might be a little shorter than when I just recorded this, like, 40 minutes ago. And I might be in a little bit less enthusiastic of a mood. What really irritates me is I thought I actually nailed it with this one, because I, I, I got passionate, and I discussed things, and there was some cool stuff, and now it's all gone, and I'd rather just quit and go and jump in a lake. But... This is my job. <sighs> Hang on, let me see if it actually saved. I just realized I had some notes on the side here, which might not have saved. No, don't. Don't do that here. Okay, save the notes. Good, good, good. Ugh, okay, so let's start by talking about how I think bringing the Romulans in was a dumb idea. So, Brennan Braga, who is kind of awesome but also terrible, is someone that I'm going to talk about. God, how did I begin this? Uh, I think the way I began this was I was talking about Brandon Braga and how I have a lot more respect for him than uh, several other people with regards to Star Trek. I've defended him several times. I, I was on the Braga hate train, too. I'm going to go ahead and admit that. I was on there, too. Uh, mostly because of Threshold, if I'm honest. But I will freely admit that I bashed Braga, along with Berman, for a long time. Then I started doing these ruminations. And as I dug through Voyager, I started to find out a little bit more about Braga and how he functions and how he thinks. And going through TNG and Enterprise has really given me more understanding of both people. Ironically, I'm actually more anti-Berman now than when I started but I am a lot more willing to give Braga some slack. And I want to explain what the biggest reason why. See, he's got, I've got two quotes over here. One is from the Star Trek Communicator, issue 130, page 29. The other is from the Star Trek Monthly, issue 99, page 8. The first says, Ahem, We have major continuity issues with them, the Romulans. Uh, we would very much like to do Romulans, but A, we don't know quite how yet, and B, since the new movie, Star Trek Nemesis, deals with Romulans, we want to give them some breathing room. We'll do it eventually, but not right away. I think it's cool that on Star Trek Nemesis you can see the Romulans of Picard's time, and at the same time you're seeing the early encounters with them on Enterprise. That's great synergy. If you don't understand the significance of this, and I'm not pulling these out of historical context, at least not that I'm aware of, um... Nemesis came out this season. I already mentioned that. At least I think I did. I know I did 40 minutes ago, so forgive me. But <laughs> you gotta laugh, right? You gotta laugh right after you punch something. It's okay. I, I have a, a bed, you know, a mattress. You just give it a right. But I keep thinking about getting an actual punching bag 
and not just for stress relief, for actual exercise. I could do some shadow boxing with it and, you know, help the shoulders out. But anyways, <sighs> so Braga is obviously just kind of talking out his ass here, basically. We want to give Nemesis some room. It's nice that we're not giving Nemesis some room. But the thing is, as much as Braga is not perfect and certainly makes plenty of mistakes, including Threshold, the more I go on, the more I get the feeling that he's just kind of grinning and bearing it, right? Like, I've really started to get this impression. And now that we have some historical distance... We can look back and we see interviews with people who are more willing to talk about the negative aspects of working on Enterprise and Voyager now that they're not working on Enterprise and Voyager. Now, some of you may not understand what I mean by that, but here in the States, you don't really want to badmouth your production while you're in the middle of it. That's just going to get you fired. Or worse, fired and then fined. So most people tend to stay quiet about things until they're done. Then they're like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and talk about it now. And this is exactly what's happened with Enterprise in particular. Most of my information is well after the show was done, and people are now talking about it. Now, as with anything historical, that means every single thing I say might be a lie, because the overwhelming majority of my information comes from people. People sharing thoughts and stories about what happened which, even if they are not trying to mislead us, might do so anyways because of the nature of how memory works, right? It's just like any historian. You know, we, we can only guess at certain events, historically speaking, because, honestly, there's just such a mess in trying to figure out what happened, right? <sighs> anyways. The reason I bring all this up, though, is because of 2007 and Las Vegas. Now, some of you already know what I'm going to say, but Enterprise had a really bad um, reception amongst Trek fandom. Remember, the internet was starting to become a thing. Conventions were very regular. You know, and this Trek wasn't quite... Uh, Trek was on a downswing, but as I talked about back in Season 1, it was still going decently and could have easily done another upswing back up into popularity, uh, like several other franchises have. hip. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, Enterprise just kind of kept uh, nosediving, and Nemesis certainly didn't help with that, but I'm getting off topic. The point being, a lot of Trek fans looked at Enterprise and went, Bleh. just universally, you know how it is, right? Season 1 of TNG sucks. You know, that mentality. And I know what you're thinking, but Season 1 of TNG does suck. I don't actually agree with that. I think it has some absolutely terrible episodes, but to call the whole episode, the whole season bad because of about five or six terrible episodes just kind of makes me raise an eyebrow. There's plenty of decent episodes in Season 1. They're not great, and they're lower quality, but to call the whole season bad? Nah, I don't buy it. Same thing with Enterprise. Going through this show, keeping in mind I haven't finished Season 2 yet, most of it's been okay, and then some of it's been boring, and then a few things have been absolutely face-palming. Like, I'd say three episodes so far, I've just been, ugh. But the overall consensus among Trek fandom was, ugh for all of Enterprise. Now, why am I saying all this? Well, because the consensus at the time was also that Voyager sucked. That's another attitude and comment you've probably heard or said many times. <laughs> Voyager sucks. The whole show. I was actually doing research for some of these quotes I'm about to share with you. Or, excuse me, I just shared with you. Sorry, I get my timeline confused here. Like I said, I just did this. And uh, one of the things that, one of the, one of the comments from years ago, from like 10 years ago, and there was, I don't know what they're talking about, Voyager always sucked. 
my reason for doing all this preface is that in 2007, Brenna Braga decided, screw it. I'm going to do one last attempt. I'm going to go in person to the convention, to the Star Trek convention in Vegas, and I'm going to walk up on stage and be like, I'm right here, hit me. His own recollection of that, his own account, multiple times lists that he was nervous as hell. And honestly, a little bit scared. Not, not like he's going to be attacked or anything, but that he was going to be eviscerated for just putting himself out there. Instead, almost the exact opposite happened. While he did defend himself on several points, he was more than willing to admit that he screwed up. And people were being pretty legit to him. And I think the biggest reason why is because Braga was trying. It took balls to do that. It took balls to stand up there and say, hey, yeah, I suck. Hit me. What do you got? And to really talk about it. And thanks to that incident in 2007, he continued having a dialogue through blogs and through interviews with Star Trek fans up until the recent era. He has continued talking about Trek when he himself walked into 2007 saying, this is going to be the end of Trek for me. But because of how positive that reaction was in person with those people, he decided to keep being a satellite of the fandom. And as a result, we have learned a lot more behind-the-scenes material about the creation of Star Trek. Funny anecdote. Braga has repeatedly apologized for several of the stupider and dumber things he's done with regards to this show and, and Voyager. And um, Berman hasn't. <laughs> Just pointing it out. But I think I'm not the only person who looked at Braga and respected that. Respected the fact that he was making the effort. Now, I swear I am going to go somewhere with all that eventually, but right now I'm just going to ask you to bear with me because this is about Romulans. Why Romulans? Braga was not a fan of TOS. No judgment. I, I actually know people personally who like Star Trek and do not like TOS. I would like to say I like TOS, but I haven't gone through it with an analysis mode on yet. I know what you're thinking, but you've been doing it for the last year. Not from my perspective. I still I do Enterprise first. Then I'm going to go back and start with the cage and then go through TOS. So I haven't actually done that yet. We'll see what I think of it. It'll be interesting to have the historical context there, since from your perspective, you've been seeing me talk about TOS for probably like six months at this point. Anyways. But nevertheless, he wasn't into it. And in many ways, that showed. And normally that wouldn't be a problem, except you, you're making a prequel show that's a direct lead into TOS, so you need to have some, some connections there. And continuity. That's the big thing with the Romulans. Now, when I recorded this about 40 minutes ago, I went on a very lengthy tirade about continuity and loops. I'm going to try and truncate this for your sake, mostly because I think I already did such a good job of my own speech that I can't replicate it, which is why I'm so pissed off that it got destroyed by a computer malfunction, but whatever. I... Um, we enjoy fiction, right? Right? The more hoops we have to jump through to make that fiction make sense, the more issues that fiction has. Now, there's nothing wrong with still enjoying that fiction, but you can see how it's, a, it's an almost linear equation. The more hoops you have to jump through, the bigger the problem is. This is especially true when it comes to things like continuity. Uh, I usually refer to this as internal and external. Internal is simple. It's within the work. So Enterprise referencing Enterprise, which actually their internal continuity has been really good. 
external is the exact opposite. Enterprise connecting with TOS and TNG and DS9 and Voyager. And the movies. That hasn't been so good. In fact, it's been pretty terrible. Which leads me, neatly, to the Romulans. Now, while I was thinking about this, I came up with a way to make this make sense. Because what we have is several things kind of cascading into itself here. The Romulan Star Empire has claimed this territory. Now, walk through me with this, okay? Here's Earth. Here's Ryza. Ryza is 90 light years away. Furthest out they've been. The next episode, they, they go to a mining colony and then go back towards Earth. I remind you, unlike TNG, which this is implied more than actually stated outright, there is a degree of geography to the path of the NX-01. They actually reference time and distance repeatedly throughout Season 1. Remember I pointed that out? So unlike in TNG where you could just say, oh lord, you're an idiot, they're just bouncing around because screw continuity, here they're trying to maintain a bit of geographical continuity. Again, internal continuity. So, having established my point there, the NX-01 starts heading back because of the events of Shockwave Part 1. Then the events of Shockwave Part 2 happen, and they go back even further. Then we have Carbon Creek. Then we have this episode. So, at absolute most, and I'm not willing to give the episode this, they're back out to the distance of Ryza. They're probably not, though. They're probably closer to Earth than Ryza is, within the 90 light year range. Which means the Romulan Star Empire has claimed a system that close to Earth. You already see the problems here? Now hang on. I can already hear you leaping to the defense. Let me talk this all the way out. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they've... There's this bit where they say the Romulans, and it, the Romulans, excuse me, Romanulans or whatever. And T'Pol says, no, Romulans. And with this thing of dread, because we've heard about them. We've heard rumors, and I quote, rumors of a territorial and aggressive species. Contact, but no info, right? Now, that's problematic in its own right, because it implies that the Vulcans have already had dealings with the Romulans, except they don't know anything about them. The Romulans, who I remind you, are pursuing an aggressive policy of interventionism and making diplomatic ties with many nearby races, including the Klingons, who geographically are actually further away, as a further reminder. So, unless we're going to say Kronos is closer to Earth than Ryza, in which case I give up. But <laughs> all of this is a roundabout way of saying that the Vulcans clearly should have more intel on the Romulans if they're already aware of them. If they're not, if they don't have more intel, they should probably be actively seeking it, because this is a threat. This is an active, demonstrable threat that is, if they're not having any info, trying to keep itself hidden from them, and that's problematic. So you can see why this is already the kind of thing that kind of makes you go, huh. Now here's the deal. We can jump through a few hoops in order to make this make sense. First hoop. So the first hoop we jump through is that the Romulans have actively been expanding towards Earth, not deliberately, just because this is a populated area, so this is where they've been expanding. It's, it's just kind of coincidental. And, by most of those star charts that aren't really canon, geographically, uh, Romulus is actually relatively close to Earth. Uh, certainly closer than Kronos is. So, it's not actually that hard of a thing. I guess I should reverse this. It's not that hard of a thing for it to assume that they were expanding this way, towards Earth. Okay. That's our first tube. 
The second hoop is to presume that this is a direct lead-up to the Earth-Romulan War. The idea here being that, because of this initial first contact, it will now be a higher priority for Vulcan Command and Starfleet to look into the Romulan situation, such that they are more prepped when they actually have their first contact with the Romulans. That would be in Season 4. Problem is, there is no connection between this episode and Season 4 that I'm aware of. There might be. That's, that's hoop number two. And if we jump through those two hoops, we could probably sway a third hoop to say that despite the fact that we have all this advanced, you know, modern level technology, we are at the point where we can have a war with the people who we don't know who or what they are. Uh, that's the third hoop. Three hoops. Not terrible. I've certainly had worse in Star Trek to make this make sense. Here's a problem. Problem number one, and this is usually the problem with hoop uh, continuity con connections. The fact that you have to jump through the hoops at all shows that the writers didn't think this through. This is us filling in their holes. Now, we do that all the time, because this isn't our 9 to 5, and we weren't distracted trying to meet a deadline. We're sitting here analyzing something we love, right? It's something a lot of people miss, is a lot of these nitpicks and a lot of this comes from a perspective of caring, not from bile. So we take the time and effort to comb over it with a fine-tooth comb, and we're like, well, hang on a second. I've actually said this before. Um, if I were to make a continuous show like this, I'd probably have people like me, <laughs> but you know what I mean, like you know, people who are like Trek nitpickers, in order to be on the show to kind of go over it and double-check my work, basically, and make sure that I didn't screw something up. <sighs> You'd think they would do that. Lord knows they had the money and the time and the budget, and plenty of people who'd volunteer for the job, but... Moving on. I mean, hell, nowadays we have YouTubers who do that for them. <laughs> I wonder if they, they there's like someone whose job it is to watch all the YouTube videos of Discovery or Picard and say, oh, they've got a good point. That doesn't make sense. We need to fill that plot hole in the next season. Good idea. Anyways. <clears throat> so, having talked all that out. Uh, oh, by the way, I should mention that Season 5 of Enterprise, we, we've heard this from Manny Cotto, was actually supposed to be the Earth-Romulan War, so... Anyways, so that's the first problem, is we are obviously caring more than they do, and they didn't. They, they left the holes there. But the second problem, and that's more to this episode in particular, and I'm finally getting back to talking about the episode, there's no reason for this to be Romulans whatsoever. None. It adds nothing. It in includes nothing. It, seriously, the Romulans out entirely. Get rid of the ships. Get rid of the... It's the Romulans. And just have it be... This planet that has mines around it, and now they're surrounded on mines, and now they need to get the hell out of Dodge, and one of the mines has to be disarmed because it's connected to Enterprise. Oh, and by the way, now Reed is impaled. I actually think the episode wouldn't suffer at all for that. In fact, I think it would actually be substantially improved. And that's the final draw for me. If a continuity snarl can be solved really easily then that's what really tends to aggravate me, because it would be so effortless to just be like, and now it's fixed. And in this case, it is. All you have to do is eject the Romulans. Okay, having said all of that, I have one more complaint here that I'm going to build up to. Um, and that's the minefield. Let's, let's just jump into it. Screw it. Let's just jump. It's the minefield. This minefield is nonsense and stupid. Ignoring the fact that they have cloaked mines, which is already what? They also apparently have enough mines to have a density that is so, so dense of mines that 
The NX-01, which is a small ship, I remind you, has to very carefully navigate its way out of them. That's how close these things are to each other. Like, as in, if you were standing on one, you could pull out a BB gun and shoot the one that was on the other. N never mind the space and lack of friction thing. Like, this is an atmosphere. You could just be like, boop. You could probably throw a rock in between them, depending on your throwing arm. They are really close together. And that's stupid. Because it means one of many things. First of all, uh, either there are just an absolutely insane, like in the trillions, if not more, of mines completely coating this planet. And also the Romulans apparently decided that rather than doing anything smart whatsoever, they want to just leave the biggest minefield, excuse me, the second biggest minefield since the Klingons mined the Bajoran system in the history of forever around a planet to claim it. And unlike the Bajoran system, where some viewers came up with hoop, hoop, a few ways to actually make this make sense, how do you explain this one? Because they just go into orbit of the planet, and it's not like there's standard, like, it's not like you're just going to get into orbit in the same spot relative to the planet every time, right? And again, this is even stupider when you consider they have a ship here. It shows up within minutes of the first mine going off. So they already have an active ship here, you know, protecting their claim. Within not very long, like a, an hour or two in universe, we have a second ship show up, so it's not that far off either. Why do they have these freaking mines? Who approved of this? I mean, I know they're supposed to be based on the Romulan Senate, which is notoriously wasteful and stupid, but this is just nonsense. But, um, you know, whatever. But, of course, if you're paying attention... The real reason it bothers me, because I'm getting, generating a headache from that earlier issue, uh, the real reason it bothers me is because it's so easy to fix. One little change, and everything's fine. My personal change is there's one minefield, but the mines themselves have basically sensors and crude thrusters, which allow them to change their orbit. So they detect a ship coming into orbit, and they're like, oh, okay. And so the swarm which is basically a small cloud of mines, relatively small. Obviously, you know, it's more than enough to engulf a ship, but it's the kind of thing that you wouldn't even see next to the planet because it's so small. Even if this minefield was the size of an urban sprawl of a city, that would be more than enough to completely encapsulate plenty of ships and would be a fairly large number of mines. It would also be microscopic next to the planet. And you kind of see why the scale thing is a problem. This is Doctor Who syndrome in a nutshell here. But imagine if it's this swarm and it just kind of moves around like a cloud and, oh, there's the, there's the ship. That would make a little bit more sense. Either way. It's okay. It's okay, guys. No problems. Everything's fine. I question nothing. <laughs> but what I do question is something that made me laugh. So I'm going through this episode. And logically, having taken all this terrible damage, including this mine, naturally they're going to go back to Earth, right? I mean, that just makes sense, you know, after all... You remember Shockwave Part 2? They got the crap beaten out of them. Just piss beaten out of them. So naturally they're going to go back to Earth and... Oh, no, they didn't. <sighs> Come on, guys. You've been doing well on continuity. Why aren't you going back to Earth? It's getting more irritating the longer it goes on. They do eventually go. I know they do. I just don't remember when. Anyways, Reed has to go in for breakfast. Yes, we finally started talking about the episode proper. Reed is uncomfortable with Archer. Remember that for later. Also, really nice tidbit. Uh, Archer brings up soccer, and Reed mentions he doesn't follow football. 
That got a smile out of me. So, uh, and then the mind goes off. How many of you are watching this with me? So the way it happened on my screen was, oh my god, it's been a long road getting from there to here. And that just made me burst out laughing. Because all of a sudden, it's like a, a funeral dirge. And boy, isn't that just... That thought made me laugh even more. Because now I'm never going to be able to listen to that song and not think that it is the funeral dirge of the Enterprise. It was a long road, and now they're all dead. Next! Anyways. So. Uh, no fatalities. Sure. I, I told you, nobody dies on this ship until Season 3. No fatalities. We do see there's a bit of an issue with having only one doctor on a ship with 80 people. That 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 is a problem. I guess I could see why you wouldn't want to, but at the same time... I get the impression that other people have nurse training, basic level medical training, and they're the ones who are acting as the orderlies and the nurses there while he's the one trying to deal with the big issues. There's a lot of the mines. I already complained about the mines. And the Romulans. I already complained about the Romulans. Um... But I got, I, I got one more thing to complain about the Romulans, because the showing up of the Romulan ship is another ticking clock, which is unnecessary, because it's there to escalate the threat. But you have a mine attached to the ship, which also just jammed a leg through Reed's leg. I think we have plenty of escalation as it is, right? I mean, and speaking of someone who has had his leg smashed by a truck, uh, yeah, that, that made me flinch. Yeesh. Anywho, <clears throat> so now they have to defuse the mine. This is when we start to talk about why the episode really works for me. Because if you've been paying attention, I've just been complaining for the last, I don't know how long. From my perspective, it's probably been about an hour at this point. But Reed starts talking to the captain how he doesn't want to socialize with him. Let me take that back. He thinks that they shouldn't fraternize on a starship, is actually what he says. So, uh, you know, Socializing. No place on a starship. That's a load of ball. But if we go through one hoop, we can actually fix this, because all we have to do is presume that he is specifically referring to Archer. Now, that is the thrust of the conversation, is specifically his, organ his connection to Archer, not to the crew as a whole, so that lines up. You're probably thinking, well, wait, Reed isn't very sociable. hate to disagree with you, but we did an entire episode about how Reed has finally finally found some place where he actually fits in and feels like he can get close to people. He has found his family. Shuttle Pod 1, my favorite episode so far. They did an entire stint about that. And he's been pretty close to Tucker ever since. So, I, I do have to say, no, that this does need a little bit of retconning and readjusting. Like I said, one hoop in order to make this make sense. And now I'm going to talk about some stuff. And God, I hope I'm going to do at least half as good a job as I did last time. I know I hate keep keep referencing it. This is my way of venting, basically. This is how I'm venting because I'm really pissed off that I lost that recording. I I nailed it, you know. And now I'm going to fail at it, and that just sucks because now I have to talk about Jellico and Janeway, but not just because they both start with a J. See, here's the thing. Janeway, well, okay, first of all, Janeway was written inconsistently because nobody could decide what to do with the character, but Janeway was usually portrayed as someone who was a little bit more distant and detached from the rest of the crew. Now, you're probably thinking, Laura, stop comparing Archer to Janeway. Hear me out, okay? Please. Janeway was trying to do that detached thing. 
Now, I have heard uh, several people in real life sciences talk about the mentality of doing exactly that, that the commander should be distant from the troops. Now, that applies militarily, that applies, applies in terms of company, companies, that implies, applies in terms of political structure. Hell, that applies to families. I've heard some people say that parents should be distant from their children. Don't agree with that one at all, but it's the same mentality. Now, when I say distant, I don't mean uncaring. It's worth noting. I, I just mean there's a barrier or two there. You don't go out and hang out with your superior officer. You don't go and, you know, have uh, watch a movie with your boss, right? That kind of a thing. Now, uh, there's some people who talk about the specifics of the value of that. Uh, one of the key points is that it's trying to make a more robotic relationship, which is, it is posited, it is alleged, that is necessary for crisis situations. In a, in a crunch, in a moment, you need people to do exactly what you tell them to do without talking back and without thinking about it, right? I don't agree with that personally. It, I, I, don't, I can't say I am right and I can't say it is wrong, but I don't agree with it. I tend to take a, pretty much the exact opposite approach, the Picard approach, to put it bluntly. <sighs> now I know what you're thinking. Laura, please stop comparing Picard to Archer, but hear me out. Picard is a seasoned, you know, veteran captain who initially was portrayed as distant in exactly that manner, but over the course of TNG stopped being distant and became much more amiable and friendly to most of his upper crew. In fact, he got to the point where he would it was on a first name basis or at least was able to recognize every member of his crew on sight. That just shows how much he gave a damn. Probably the best example of this is actually Roe, but Rolaren. But there are plenty of other examples across TNG. Now, Picard's not the best example of this, of course, although I do think Picard is the best captain in Starfleet. Oh, shoot. I need to explain that, don't I? I did last time. <laughs> you got Kirk, you got Cisco, you got Picard, right? Cisco feels like a much better commander. He's up there with his troops, front line, fighting them, and thinking tactically. Kirk feels much better in a crisis. He is the hero. He is the one who is using his wits and his trust in his people, his family, and he applies in this way as well, by the way, in order to try and make things work. Picard is the captain. He is the nerve center of the ship, and he knows who needs to be where and what to fix things. And he is directly connected to every other section of that ship, and it all connects straight back to him. This is why I say Picard is the captain, whereas Kirk is the hero and Sisko is the commander. You follow me so far? So, let's bring Jellico into this one. Jellico, by the way, I loved all your guys' responses back in Chain of Command Part 1 and 2. Lots of great stuff, including a lot of people who disagreed with me, and a lot of people who didn't agree or disagree just had a different thought entirely. Love, love seeing the feedback. Um, I'm curious how the comment section is going to go for these episodes. But Jellico was... Distant, again, like Reed prefers. In fact, Reed would probably be extremely comfortable under someone like Jellicoe. Allow me to use a direct example rather than continue trying to explain badly. Picard would sit down and say, all right, here's the situation. Suggestions? And then his crew would give him buy-in. His senior officers would talk to him, and he would nod and be like, okay, this is how this should go. And he knew them, and they knew him. 
Now that's important. This is the fatherly approach. And this is the biggest, well, the second biggest reason why I posit it. Because it engenders trust. Because you are more connectly connected to these people because of the fact that you are friends in addition to the fact that you are comrades now when the thing when when it comes to crunch time when you really need to make the dangerous call you can make it and they will follow it remember leadership is not about leading a bunch of robots you can come up with a brilliant tactic in an rts game or a strategy game but you don't have to worry about your troops following your orders or doing exactly what you want them to you just say do this and they do it that's what Jellico wants. Someone like Jellico. And I keep trying not to, to talk about cats. <laughs> Jellico, Jellico, Jellico. But what Picard does is engenders the loyalty and trust necessary so that they do what you need them to do when you need them to do it. And they trust you enough to know that you're making the right call. And you can see why that's especially true in a military situation. Because Starfleet's military. So... Never gonna let that go. I, I'm more joking about it nowadays. I'm I'm just po prodding fun. I do apologize. I don't mean to actually provoke anyone. What does this have to do with Archer? Oh, I, hang on. I didn't I didn't finish the analogy. So Picard calls the meeting and he gets buy-in. What would Jellico do? Well, Jellico would come in, and it's not actually a meeting. Uh, it's a briefing. Okay, here's the situation, and he would do one of two things. He'd either say, "You do this. You do this. You do this," or he would say, "All right, this is what needs to be done." And he would trust them to just do it. They were executors of his will rather than people who were helping him to run the ship. So you can see how there's a fairly stark contrast in command approach. And I talked about this back in Chains of Command. I'm not trying to rehash this just to rehash this, but I do think it's very important because it's all about Archer's approach to command, which is none. I'm not bashing Archer, but he doesn't have a command approach because he has no idea what he's doing. He's not Jellico or Picard or, or or Janeway. He is trying to be Picard. You probably already see where I'm going with this one. Because Archer is distant. He's best friends with Trip because they've been friends for like nine years. We'll discuss in the future. And he's getting closer to Paul, and that bond is getting stronger. But that's it. He doesn't know his crew, and they don't know him. And there's not really a, a bond or a connection or a fatherly thing going on there. He is far more like Jellico. But he is trying to be like Picard. This is why he brought Reed into that breakfast at the beginning. Why he tried to reach out to them. Why he tries to care about his crew. And so that they could care about him. Reed obviously disagrees with that mentality. You know, that, like I said, you should, that's not appropriate for a starship. And even uh, uh, Archer mentions he was trained to think the opposite way, too. But he's thinking maybe that's not the right way. Now, honestly, this is probably more of a segue into a more Kirkian approach when it comes to being a captain. But it is interesting that this is probably the biggest reason why I'm willing to give Archer credence. Because finally, finally in this show, Archer is acknowledging, if passively, that he's a bad captain. This is something that's going to come up in just a second here as well. And he is unwilling to make the hard call. Now that's more an aspect of being a commander, if I'm being honest, than a captain. It's far more of a tactical equation. When you look at Troy. No, stop looking at Troy. Stop looking at Troy. I know she's attractive. 
When you look at Troy, she had to learn how to order Jordy to his death. Because that's being a commander. Cold, brutal, calculus. Nothing more, nothing less. It's dark, and it's unpleasant, and it's horrible, and that's your job. Have fun! And testing that people are willing to do that, willing to accept and acknowledge that, is why that's part of the command training. And why commanders need to learn how to do that. Obviously, biological extension, that means captains have to do the same thing in Star Trek's uh, hierarchy. Obviously, none of that's been established yet. Archer's kind of the first one out here in this extent and capacity. But Archer would fail at that. I'm going to segue into one more thing, and then I'm going to tie this all up with a nice little bow here, because I want you to imagine last time I came up with a really stupid circumstance. I'm not even going to come up with a scenario, okay? I'm, not, I'm just not going to do it. You have the opportunity to die in order to save the lives of people you love. Just picture them really quick. Uh, people you're really close to, people you really care about. Maybe it's your comrades, maybe it's your fellows, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your friends, it's your loved ones, whatever. Now picture that you can kill yourself, lay down your life, and in so doing you will save theirs. Now I'm going to be blunt, it's not a hard call to make. And I imagine most people would, especially in the moment, make that call, probably without even thinking about it. That's what Reed is doing here. He is being a good soldier. He is, just like his great-uncle, and that story about him going down on the ship, he is willing to lay down his life to save his crew. Remember, his family. Shuttlepod 1, he's finally found someplace he cares about, and he is absolutely willing to make that call. He's probably professional enough that he'd be willing to do it for anybody, but you can see why it's even easier for him to do that, why he pushes for that to the point where he actually pulls out his air supply, just to know, really, make it clear, I'm going to make this sacrifice. He actually fights Archer on this. That's how much he's pushing for this. Archer is not willing to do that. Again, the bad commander thing, but flip that for a second. This is the downside of being close with your staff. This is the biggest con to it. You have to accept the re reasonability of being the boss to your friend. And even at something like an Arby's, that's not fun. But in a military situation, Troy had to order Geordi to his death. Now, it was fake, but you get the idea. What if Troy had to actually order Geordi to his death? What if she actually had to push for that? What if... You had to turn to that someone you loved and say, you need to die so the rest of us can live. That is a much harder thing to do. At least I would think so. So Archer can't. I know, I know. In the episode, he doesn't have to. They, they work around it, so there's actually not only the solution they come up with, but honestly, there's probably three or four other answers to this dilemma rather than sacrifice or, you know, whatever. But point being, even if there was no other answer, Archer is not the kind of person who could order someone he cared about to make that call, to, to sacrifice themselves for the crew. This is going to come up in the future, and that's part of why I'm banging on this point so much. So Archer is a bad captain, but I'm with this. I'm with this because it's him showing the, the, this, this fact, it's him acknowledging this fact in-universe, and, well, first of all, like I said, it would be hard to do what he is being called to do, but second of all, because he's trying. 
This is why he reaches out to Reed. This is why he makes the attempt to fraternize. Why he is attempting to both be a better captain and a better person. Why he is trying. And you see now why I listed that whole thing earlier about Braga. <laughs> I don't think it's a uh, deliberate thing to connect Archer to Braga, but at the same time, uh, considering a lot of the crap that Braga had to go through basically because he was ordered to, I mean... That's all I have to say about the episode. I had one last thought about the Romulan ships. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to risk it. Hopefully, the... This is when the computer crashed, right at this point in my notes. So please don't crash again. If you're seeing this, it didn't crash. If if you're not seeing this, then I've I've committed seppuku because this is ridiculous. One of the things that pissed me off is the Romulans were so unnecessary for the show, and they are. This episode, I mean, they didn't need to be here. And there's this bit at the end where they're like, "Oh my God, the Romulans are attacking us. We've got to go. We've got a ticking clock other than the mine." It's just there for pointless, stupid drama. But. If we jump through one hoop, what we find is a situation which makes perfect sense. Because the Romulans are all about subtlety and subterfuge and coercion and politics and, you know, manipulating the playing field. Keep this in mind for a second. First they showed up, tried to communicate, saw the communication wasn't happening, fired two warning shots. Now, if you're not catching this, Think about how many other ships that, that this crew has encountered in this show where the antagonistic alien shows up and fires on Enterprise. That's been happening since early season one. But instead, the Romulans shoot a warning shot. Why? Then, as they're going to escape, they're like, all right, we're powering up our weapons, even though it doesn't take that long. And now we're locking on DR engines, even though we could have been firing as of like five or six seconds ago. Jesus Christ. Hang on, I just got an email saying you were not being sued. That That's always a good email to get. <laughs> I'll cut to that in a minute. I don't want to rest it anymore. My point is, what the Romulans are doing is clearly trying to um, provoke, you know, manipulate, alter the situation without actually getting into a shooting war. And that lines up, doesn't it? The Romulans generally do avoid just outright saying, yeah, sure, we're going to blow you up. Instead, they tend to go along with things. One of the books that follows Deep Space Nine actually had a thing where after the events of In the Pale Moonlight, it's, it's learned that the Romulans knew about it, let it happen, because that way they had an excuse to join the war, and now they have this blackmail material over Starfleet. And I bring all this up because that actually lines up surprisingly well with how the Romulans operate. It's a shame that I wish that they weren't in this episode at all. Or that this was a much later episode in the show. <sighs> Hear me out for a second. We find out... Uh, there's stuff in Season 4, I'm not going to spoil, especially since I don't remember all the details of it. But we find out in Season 4 the Romulans are active in this section, which makes absolutely perfect sense. Any major power should be active in this area. The Vulcans are active in this area. Earth is active in this area. We find that the Tellarites have been active in this area for some time, too. Remember Carbon Creek? It was a Tellarite ship that got their distress call, which means they were in range of Earth. My point is, that all lines up. But imagine if this episode was one of the earliest episodes of Season 5, instead of 2. 
all of a sudden, all that stuff in Season 4 formed a lead-up for this. And now, now that we know and now that we see, the Romulans are actually making moves, and this could then lead to the hostilities that would eventually become the Earth-Romulan War. And that one positioning, one change, suddenly makes it work a lot better, because all of a sudden it's not actually about claiming the thing or the minefield or anything, it's about the Romulans trying to push, provoke, and prod this, this alien for force of, of Starfleet and trying to figure out how they're going to respond to things trying to level the playing field and control the chessboard. <sighs> I did like this episode, despite everything. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, and I'm going to cut this off before my computer crashes on me again. <sighs> See you next time, guys.